Welcome to Blonde Moments Podcast. I am your host, Gina Bogey. And I am Melinda Collins. We're here for your entertainment. Time of quarantine. Yeah, it's so sad to me. We keep getting uh, emails from people saying we're like, they're only light during this dark time. And I feel so bad because I, there's some days I just want to cry all day long. I know. And I can just totally relate. I mean, after I take a shower, I put on my same like outfit and I'm like, honey, guess what I'm wearing today? And he's like, blue sweatpants. I'm like, yeah, you got it. <laughs> For me, it's yoga pants. Black yoga pants? More black yoga pants? How about some army green yoga pants? Sure. I'll rotate yeah. them. Those are smarter though, because then at least you know if you're gaining any weight. My sweatpants are those Walmart Hanes sweatpants that you <laughs> see people who have officially <laughs> given up wearing. That is my uniform. I mean, it's so weird, right? Like this, try to navigate this time that we're living in. I've heard, you know, myself included as well, too. Like it is an extremely emotional time where people definitely 100% feel different day to day. Like mm-hmm. some days I get up and I'm like, woo, gonna do it all today. And then some days I wake up and I'm like, I just don't really want to do much today, you know, and I feel sad. Well, this week, I've really started on trying to just watch what I've been eating. I've been working out every single day. And then to like last night, I was laying in bed, I was just literally eating spoonfuls of peanut butter. And I I tweeted out, I'm like, is it acceptable to eat one whole jar of peanut butter in one setting? And everybody was like, in agreement. They're like, Oh, dip it with Oreos or dip it with Kit Kats. I'm like, okay, I <laughs> I need to like You're slow not down. alone. I'm not, but you know, there's some days it's just like I could just cry. And it's just because yeah. I miss my parents and you know, it's just it, it's it's really difficult and I have a 5-month-old, so like for my yeah. parents to not even be able to see him. I mean, we FaceTime every day and I've been having my mom, well she asked to read him bedtime stories and that's been Aww. like a help. Yeah. That's nice. But it's it's hard right now. So people, I'm with you. Like this is it. So I'm happy we can give you some humor and some then we to listen to yeah in this crazy time like i think a laugh is definitely needed we try to keep it lighthearted for everybody you know <laughs> and then we're I giving them a you, true mel I know, I know i miss you too <laughs> but i was saying in today we're going to be giving them a true crime episode so dark on dark on dark right right but i did find some really really weird stuff too have you heard jared leto do you know who he is? Yeah, um, the actor and the lead frontman of uh, 30 Seconds to Mars. Yes, he has a cult. I saw something about that. But is it a real cult or is it just people who are like super fans? Well, there's like, I guess it's a running joke with them that they'll say, yes, it's a cult. But it sounds eerily familiar to it being a cult. So there's an island. They call it Mars Island. You pay for like a three-night all-inclusive festival experience. You can get there, go there and be relaxed and restored with yoga, take a dip in the pool, catch a midnight screening or gaze at the stars and catch two intimate performances with 30 Seconds to Mars. So people are saying it's like freaking awesome. But then when people are being interviewed about it, I guess it's a lifestyle and they're saying all these things that people normally identify a cult with. I don't know. I thought it was I thought it was interesting. I have heard of this. Isn't it like a camp too? Like don't they camp Mm -hmm. out there? So So I have heard of this. They've been doing this for a while now. Like years they've been doing this. Well this was the first I had heard of it and I was like, oh my God, I have to talk about it because it's so bizarre to me. I do like Jared Little. I mean I don't know if 
30 Seconds to Mars has any current songs, but I mean, everybody knows like a couple of theirs, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But isn't he like older? He's got to be in his 40s. Well, I got to actually meet him before. So when this episode comes out, I will share a picture of me with Jared Leto. Uh, He was so kind. He was so nice. And he was my crush when I was a teenager or not even I was younger than that because my soul called life was out and he was Jordan Catalano. And I thought he was so hot. (laughs) Yeah. But I like Um, met him and he- 48. Okay, yeah, I thought he was in his 40s. I don't, he was like, he was definitely a, a crush of mine when I was younger. So when I got to meet him, it was awesome, but I was disappointed because I was like a monster in size compared to him. He was very thin and short, shorter than I was, or maybe he's like right at my height and I was wearing heels. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I wish I was a little bit taller. Oh. But I mean, he's still he's still a very good looking man in, in person, but. <laughs> he's a good looking man for sure, but there's something about him that's a little creepy-ish too. <laughs> maybe the fact that he's the leader of a cult. I don't know. So- <laughs> like, I don't know, but I do think he's an attractive man for sure. But the camp sounds fun to me. Yoga, you know. Well, they like- call it a quote unquote experience, and it starts at nine ninety five. That's not including your flight or travel to the island. What the fuck? Um, and it could get you up to sixty five hundred dollars. There's different tiers. There's the Mars passport, and there's also an exclusive VIP experience with Jared. Which, if you're gonna pay that much money, you might as well go all out, right? I don't know about that. (laughs) That's a (laughs) lot of fucking money for a concert, essentially. Yeah, but if it's like three days, okay. Even Lollapalooza isn't that much, is it? Six brands. But this is like supposed to be intimate. And well, then how they, many bands do you get to see at Lollapalooza? More than just 30 seconds to Mars. But hey, you can also get a tattoo of a smiley face or their cult symbol, which is a triangle with a line through it. <laughs> Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know about that. And so this is what the people who their devoted Jared Leto followers have said. They flock to defend him, and they have put forward what they believe to be solid arguments that outline why this is not a cult. One, constantly repeating the phrase "it's not a cult." Two, <sighs> trying to insult me. Three, no one has died. And four, it is actually called a cult because Jared trademarked the phrase "Yes, it's a cult," which was supposed to be a joke. How could that be a f- trademark phrase? Oh, and they call him Prophet. So- what? <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. This is but- a little fucking out there for me even, and I'm pretty fucking weird. <laughs> you know? So there's Does a he hand- fuck any of these people, do you think? He's single, I- right? He's not married. Not that I've heard of, but I hope so. I mean, Here's imagine- my scenario. Hey, that that's he has- part of your $6,500 pay-in is that you get to sleep with him. I mean- Yeah. He probably has like <laughs> this special- special tent for the prophet right and he get, he picks chosen ones like yes. women, like who all just get to fuck like in this big orgy and in, in but the let's be honest if tent. i was in my 20s and i had that kind of money in my 20s mm, i'd probably go to that prophet tent <laughs> <laughs> hey i also wanted to tell you someone dm'd me and asked me to be their sugar baby <laughs> yes I'm a little too old to be considered a sugar baby, I think. Uh, <laughs> telling you, we can put up a feet website, feet pics. Let's do it. People would pay to see Nessie, I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, in some of the messages that we've received about how we're the only light during this time, people have actually ma- mentioned Nessie as one of the things getting them through. So, See? You know what? I will have to put a post of Nessie up 
on <laughs> our Instagram just for you guys. I'll like paint them a cute color or something, you know. Yeah, maybe you could have a poll on what color Nessie should be painted before <laughs> his Instagram or her Instagram debut. I don't know. Do you call it a he or a she? It's a she. Nessie's a she. Okay. She's a See, I always gentle- thought it was a he. No, she's a kind and gentle soul. Well, also, I was going to say, we should be careful talking about this Jared Leto cult stuff because we could get some people coming after us. Hey, I'm not mad about it. Of all the celebrities out there, this is one I understand. I even said if I was in my 20s and could afford it, I would have totally done this. I just hadn't heard it because it just seems so out there. But you do what you want to do. I mean, hey. You know know why he'd have chosen me. You'd have seen Nessie. <laughs> <laughs> Even like you in the and prophet me, tent now. And me, <laughs> in me in my 20s, he would have seen my breasts because I would have popped those babies out. <laughs> Look at these. <laughs> well, I have also found some fun things on the interwebs lately about the quarantine, which I think is fun that people are like choosing to have a little bit of fun with it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where everyone else lives, but here in Wisconsin, they actually just yesterday extended the stay-at-home act um, until May 26th. So pray for all, us, y'all. Yeah, we all got another like um, you know six what, weeks. Five. So a funny thing I've seen is quarantine haircuts. <laughs> Oh, God. People cutting their own hair, um, like women cutting bangs and that going horribly wrong, um, and men too. And there's actually a dedicated Instagram page to it now called Official Corona Cuts. I'll have to check it out. Or official underscore Corona underscore cuts. Like That's why you don't put underscore in your name, Mel Gina. hates the underscore. <laughs> But also, like, um, celebrities, too, I've seen um, they're posting photos of, like, letting their grays show or, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I know I got some fucking regrowth happening right now. I actually, my salon I go to, they did a curbside pickup of your specific color. I just did it yesterday, and I'm looking fly and fresh. Did it myself, but. Maybe you could have her send some my way. I am not. I got that Rona hair right now. (laughs) The Rona hair. (laughs) And um, the second thing I saw on the internet that I I fucking love this, and Melinda and I, we're going to have to do this. I'm sorry. You're just now hearing about this. And I can't believe that I haven't seen this yet. It's called Hashtag Pillow Challenge. Oh, did you start this? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, no, but I'm telling you, it's fucking ingenious. So what do you think Pillow Challenge is, Mel? I actually saw it. Oh, did you? Yeah, oh, make, to make it look like a dress, right? Yes. So okay. you're supposed to, you know, and there, obviously a longer pillow or like a body I saw pillow. it because of the beautiful Halle Berry. Yes. So that's why I saw it. And I just saw it this morning. So if we recorded yesterday, I would not have known. Oh, <laughs> well, anyways, I think we should both do it. I think we mm-hmm. should get our pillows and our belts on and put... All right. It'll give me an excuse to do my hair and makeup and wear a pillow, which is <laughs> my fucking favorite. <laughs> but all your pillows are going to have holes in it, so I don't I'll know. I'll put a pillow cu- like case on it, whatever, cover, so you won't see the holes. <laughs> and then my photo shoot that I'm going to do of myself, because you're supposed to not be wearing anything underneath, right? I'm going to feel so sexy and hot and bothered. I'm going to need some... <laughs> 
<laughs> I will tell you, honestly, to stick with that, during this quarantine, I have been hornier than I've been in a long time. Uh, see, there's nothing else to do. You just at home. We haven't even had any topics that are sexy either. It's just like I'm like watching something. I'm like, ooh, I got that little tingle. Like, <laughs> maybe I, mean, I do need to invest in a good pillow. <laughs> they say it's a good way to like release, you know, like stress and things like that. Or just been, masturbate. That works too, right? I've been, get, I've been getting the D. I've been getting it. Chris is like, you want it, take it. I've been taking it. <laughs> if you want it, take it. <laughs> Doesn't take him long to get ready, you know, so. Right. We've heard. Seconds. <laughs> Maybe tonight's the night Maddie will get me to play one of your stick it in there and see how long it takes to get a hard game. <laughs> or pussy ass. That's a good one, too. Get him real uh, turned on. <laughs> He'll be like, ew. <laughs> You never know. My last quarantine fun thing, um, which I need to go to like um, PA or something, Puzzles Anonymous. Oh, I thought you were going to say Pennsylvania. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, what's PA? Oh, Pennsylvania. Because I have bought so many puzzles because I've been doing so many puzzles. And let me tell you that puzzles are like gold right now. They're sold out on Amazon. They're sold out on Target. They're sold out because Barnes and Noble, you can order the puzzles and they'll do like curbside, you know, pick up safely mm-hmm. or whatever. They're fucking sold out of like every puzzle on Barnes and Nobles. I've had to resort to eBay and I'm like glued to my phone when these bids are ending on these. <laughs> oh my God. I have, I think two here if you want to come grab one. Well, they have to be at least a thousand pieces to be challenging. They are. And the one I have is like a bunch of ice cream cones, so it's really hard. Well, see, I will, I'll take it then. Because I have no time to do that with my son. He would probably put the pieces in his mouth and... <laughs> well, I but have to keep that's cute. I like that you're doing that. It's so old school. I have to keep the puzzle pieces away from Dexter for sure. Yeah, I'm glad you got all the fun, happy stuff in there because every story I have is pretty dark. Oh, well, great. Well, I'm glad I got the fun... <laughs> Did you ever watch The Land Before Time when you were a child? 100%. It was like the saddest movie ever. Yeah, so it gets even sadder because, do you remember Ducky? Yeah. She was murdered. What? Like the person who played Ducky? Yes. Yes. Oh my God. She was 10 years old when she got murdered. (gasps) So I'm one of those people when I watch a TV show, I'm always like, oh, I recognize that person. Where do I recognize them from? And then I'm quick to go on IMDb, look them up, and then I I go down these dark tunnels of, oh, I know this person, and then let's see their photos, and then let's see what other work they've done. So however it happened, I stumbled upon this little girl's IMDb because I wanted to see who it was to see if what is she doing now and to find out that she was murdered in a part of a double murder-suicide when she was 10 years old. Oh, my God. God. So do you want me to go through what happened? Well, yeah, now you have to. How old was she when she recorded Land Before Time? Because 10 years old is pretty young. Like, Yeah, she was also in Jaws, The Revenge, The Land Before Time, and All Dogs Go to Heaven, which I watched that movie so many times when I was a little kid. The animated one? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so her father's name was Yosef Barsi. Her name was Judith Barsi. Judith Eva Barsi. She was an American... I'm just reading this off of Wikipedia, but she was an American... American 
child actress of the 1980s, she began her television career, her career in television, making appearances in commercials, TV series, and then what I had said before. As her career success increased, her father became an alcoholic. He started becoming really angry and would routinely threaten to kill himself, his wife, and daughter. His drinking led to three arrests for driving under the influence of alcohol. In December of 1986, Maria, so her mother, reported his threats and physical violence towards her to the police. After the police found no physical signs of abuse, she decided not to press charges against him. Oh, man. Which... I hate you, that. I know you hear that so often. After the incident with the police, Yosef reportedly stopped drinking but continued to threaten Maria and Judith. His various threats included cutting their throats as well as burning down the house. Oh my he, God. He also reportedly hid a telegram informing Maria that a relative in Hungary had died in an attempt to prevent her from leaving the United States with Judith. The physical violence continued with Judith telling a friend that her father threw pots and pans at her, resulting in a nosebleed. As a result of her abuse, she started gaining weight and exhibited disturbing behavior such as plucking out her eyelashes and pulling out her cat's whiskers. No. May of 1988, after breaking down, she was taken by Maria to a child psychologist who identified severe physical and emotional abuse and reported her findings to Child Protective Services. The investigation was dropped after Maria assured the caseworker that she intended to begin divorce proceedings against Yosef and that she and Judith were going to move into a Panorama City apartment she had recently rented as a daytime haven from him. Maria's friends urged her to follow through with the plan, but she hesitated due to her fear of losing the family home and belongings. So this is where... We find out what happens. So July 28th, 1988, the LA Times reported that three people were found dead in apparent murder-suicide. The bodies were believed to be that of Judith, her mother Maria, and her father Yosef. The article quoted Police Lieutenant Warren Knowles as saying a flammable liquid, likely gasoline, had been poured on the bodies of Maria and Judith oh by Yosef. Yosef's body was found in the garage dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. A neighbor said she heard a gunshot around 8.30 in the morning, prompting her to call the police. And then that's when they found the scene, which is so sad to me. So sad. Because that was like a big part of my childhood. Well, watching that. what's even more sad too is, like you said, we, you hear so many things about this where there was opportunities for him to be held accountable and for them to get away and get help. And it's like, it just, it, for whatever reason, each time it slipped between the cracks or mm-hmm. they were too afraid of him or whatever. And I just, I hate hearing that. Yeah. And it's just crazy because- you know, I know people myself who they would call the cops on their significant other for getting beat up and stuff. And they would tell them, like, just let him. He's he's drunk. Just let him go to sleep when it was, you know, the 80s. I mean, thank God. Right. So anyways, sorry. That was sad. But it was so surprising to me when I saw that because yeah. I'm like, I'd never heard of that before. Well, and she had already done th- – three like really popular films right so i imagine that her career would only have kept going from there you know so how sad by the time she was in fourth grade she was earning a hundred thousand dollars a year and she had purchased their three-bedroom house they were living in in los angeles wow sorry to bring it down but i guess it's our true crime episode today so i figured stick with that yeah maybe it's a good segue into our true crimes mine's pretty dark too And actually, mine involves children as well. Oh, boy. Well, I guess that's a transition to get right into (laughs) it. (laughs) So this happened in 1999, and I remember it very clearly because it, it was one of those things that you hear about, and it just sticks with you. Like, it was disturbing to me, like... 
I, of course, wanted to bring this up when our true crime episode. So on November 3rd, 1998, at around 5 o'clock p.m., a little girl named Maddie Clifton disappeared. She was eight years old. And the first suspect was actually a neighbor who was arrested twice around 15 to 20 years earlier for sexual assault cases, um, but charges were dropped against him. Um, So they were automatically looking at this guy first. And he failed a lie detector test in relation to Maddie's disappearance, um, but did provide an alibi. So they were searching for Maddie, like everybody was searching for the neighborhood. A reward was offered. and, And one of the volunteers was actually this guy, Joshua Phillips, that was... The murderer. Oh, boy. (laughs) Even more creepy to me. And I've heard that, too, like a lot of times when people have had like these crimes happen and they can't find a suspect. And like, let's say they host like a town hall meeting. The perpetrator usually is there. Right. Just like this 14-year-old boy who was helping search for her knowing damn well what happened, right? And- you know, it's interesting to me too because they originally were trying to pan it on, you know, pin it on this guy who had a record, you know, that failed the lie detector test. Think about if they would have actually convicted him of this, then then the real murder would have gone free, right? Mm-hmm. And who knows what have happened? So the search ended a week after the disappearance when his mom, Mother Melissa, went to clean his room and found that his waterbed seemed to be leaking. Along further examination, she discovered Maddie's body hidden inside the base of his waterbed. Oh, my God. She promptly ran outside her home and went across the street to get the police. Phillips was arrested later that day at his school and was held in maximum security as he made his first court appearance. It was determined that her death was due to stabbing and clubbing with a baseball bat. Oh, my God. And so then I'm like, why? Why would he do this, right? He stated that the event happened when he was home alone and Maddie came to his house asking to come outside and play baseball. He agreed, even though he was not allowed to have friends over while his parents were not home. As the two were playing baseball, Maddie threw the ball at him and he hit it, which caused the ball to hit Maddie's eye. She then began to bleed, cry, and scream. Knowing that his father would be home soon, Phillips panicked, Thinking mm. that his father's, you know, going to be really upset when he gets home. So he decided to drag Maddie into his house, took her into his room where he proceeded to strangle her with a phone cord <gasps> for 15 minutes. Oh, my Lord. Soon after, he hit her again with the baseball bat and stuffed her under the base of his bed. When his father returned home, he went to interact with him for a while before returning to his room. When he returned to his room, he discovered that Maddie was still alive moaning under his bed he then removed the mattress and stabbed her 11 (gasps) times killing her god so many things that are interesting to me here right like so basically he's claiming that his motivation was he was afraid of his dad well that's what i was going to ask is there something more there he was afraid of his dad apparently his dad was you know very strict or abusive maybe even that's what i was wondering yeah yeah and so he really thought that this was like his only option somehow but at the same time it's like he had an opportunity when he came back into his room and she was still alive to do the right thing and he was and 14 like, 14 and she was 8 yeah that's and like, old enough to know It's like, okay, if he's like eight years old and he thinks, oh, my God, I have to like hide this, my dad, you know, but 14 years old, I mean, that's that's old enough to know like somebody like the person's actually dead. You know, like an eight year old may not grasp that concept, but 14 years old, you're well aware of what you're doing. 
Oh, yeah. And he had that opportunity to do the right thing and then and to try to get help for her and save her. And he's sleeping with her under his bed. For a week. He was sleeping with her dead under his bed for a week. Like, I just can't even. His trial was held. He was convicted on first degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Uh, He was not eligible for the death penalty since he was under 16 when he committed the murders. It said the autopsy didn't reveal any sexual assault, but her body was found naked from the waist down. And he stated that her clothes came off while he was dragging her body to his room. Oh, yeah. God. And it said the murder <gasps> appears to have been motivated by his fear of his abusive and alcoholic father, who would have been very angry if he found Maddie in the okay. house. So. And then there was appeals. His mother had filed appeals, you know, saying that it, it, it was unfair to give a juvenile life in prison, that it was unconstitutional. So they filed an appeal, but it, it was it was still upheld. He was still charged with murder again without the possibility of parole. But it does say that he is eligible for new resentencing in 2023. What do you what do you think about that? I feel like even as a mother, it would be hard for me to say what I would want to do. Like you obviously you want your son out, but if your son is capable of something like that, how I don't know. And it's so tricky because he's young. You know, did he learn from it? I mean there's so I have so many questions about it. I mean, but you can be afraid of your father and not murder an eight-year-old girl. True. Very true. I guess I would need to know more the extent of the abuse, especially if you were an abused child. Why would you want to inflict abuse on another child knowing how much it hurt you? Well, there has to be some psychological impact of what he was going through. Even it it had to be more than that. He was just afraid. There has to be something more than it too. In my opinion, I mean, this was... 1999. Mhm. I mean in my opinion as well too because even mm-hmm. he was 14 years old which is well of the age to know to know better. I I just I can't imagine I don't know the abuse being that bad where you would actually kill an 8-year-old girl. Like that's really ex- fucking extreme. <laughs> I'd rather get grounded for a month and get my ass beat than kill a fucking 8-year-old girl. So it's not like he purposely threw the ball and inflict this injury. I mean, you're playing a sport. You have to imagine there's going to be some sort of injury. So there's there has to be Something's more. not right there. Yeah. And that's why I was saying, like, it's a good thing that the other guy who was innocent wasn't convicted because I can only imagine that this wouldn't have been the first time that this man killed somebody. So what's that story of the guy who was innocent? So how did he end up, do you know how he got drug into this whole case? Only because he had a record and he lived in the neighborhood. That's it though. So there yeah. wasn't like they had found something that, okay. so they, they so it's like, interviewed him, gave him a lie detector test and he failed the lie detector test. So then they okay. were really suspicious of him, even though he had an alibi. And no. not only that, but we have learned that lie detector tests really are not aren't yeah. Well, which is why they're reliable. not admissible in court. Right? Admissible. Because That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> wow. The mom found the body a week later, so I imagine they were probably still looking at that guy. Sure. That. And then all of a sudden, the mom found the body. Can you imagine being his mom? I feel like as a mother, your first instinct then is to protect your child. So I'm surprised that she offered him up and said this is she what She did happened. the right thing. Yeah, yeah. she went to the police yeah. right away. For sure know. she did. But, but can you imagine how terrifying that no. would be? You know, you know this girl is missing. Everybody's looking for her and you find her dead body underneath your son's bed. Like that's Mm-mm. 
awful. I remember there was a story of this little redheaded boy. I think he got picked on all the time. And he ended up, I think he was maybe like 12 or 13, but he lured this younger eight-year-old boy who was riding his bicycle to school into the forest and he like stuck sticks up his butt. Like he killed he like killed him with a rock and oh all all of this sort of stuff. And it's I believe in that situation too, the parents ended up turning the kid in. I'd, I'd have and to how look old it up, was but he? I'm he, sorry. He, I think he was like 12 or 13 because oh, he's still in yeah. jail he, or prison right now. And I know that he's always trying to appeal because he's like, I was a kid myself. And when you hear those stories, it's just it shakes you to the core that you think of children being so innocent. Right. And, and yes, you're a child, but what what normal child is shoving sticks up someone's butt and beating them with rocks till they're dead? I mean, well, I mean, it even makes me think of that one case from right here in Wisconsin, um, The Slender Man. Mm-hmm. I know, watched and, that documentary on HBO like a month or two ago. And how old – those girls were the same age, like 12, 13, 14, yeah. correct? Something like that? Saying that yeah. they believed in Slender Man? Like, did you really believe in Slender Man? Like, I don't know. But they stabbed her I don't know how many times. Yeah, yeah thank God. But, I mean, God, talk about trust issues there for the rest of her life, right? I know somebody who served on the jury for one of those girls – and they were saying it was like the hardest thing to have to hear the stories and what went on. But that Slenderman documentary was interesting. I know they kind of took the approach of you trying to understand what those girls were going through and right. what led them to be that way. But if you're capable of that, you have some evil inside of you. But I feel so bad for the parents of the victim and the girls who did it, I mean, they all yeah. seem just like normal families. In this particular instance, you didn't hear of any physical, mental abuse. From the families, yeah. Like yeah. They, they had completely normal, loving families. Yeah. But in this case, too, it was like they got so wrapped up in this fairy tale of Slender Man that they claimed they really believed that it was real. And this is know? a girl they considered to be their best friend, too. Right. <gasps> yeah. And when I, I watched the documentary as well, too, I'm like, oh, my God, it makes you as a parent not even want to let your kid go to a fucking sleepover. Right. You know? Yeah, because it was planned out well in advance right and she had no idea like God. it's just so crazy <laughs> I, it's wild to me Ugh, lord almighty yeah we got real dark there too Mm-hmm. mine's a little bit of a longer story it's an 80s story i had actually never heard of this story before and so i found it very interesting because i feel like man i've heard of so much stuff <laughs> but this is on the i5 strangler have you heard of this? I one? think I have heard of this. In Sacramento, California. Yes. Okay. I, I feel like every every crazy, crazy story you hear is either in Wisconsin or Sacramento or Florida, right? Uh do you want to know where that Joshua Phillips story was from? Florida. Florida. <laughs> of course. Of Jacksonville. Course. Okay. Sorry, Florida. We do I do I love Florida. I do. I have a big spot in my heart for Florida, you know, but Mm-hmm. Damn it, Florida, you don't help me out sometimes, you know? I think the Floridians know. I don't I think it's like a standing joke with them too. So For sure. They're like, please don't be a story from Florida. Please don't be a story. <laughs> it's a story from Florida. It's a story from Florida. Well, mine is not. It's a story from California. July 15th, 1986, in Sacramento, California, a fisherman is out setting his fishing traps in a drainage ditch to catch crawfish. There he discovers a female's lifeless body. 
She was face down, wearing white elastic shorts, a bra, and they found one sandal nearby. In the dried grass near the drainage ditch, it looked like a body had been drugged through the grass and thrown into the ditch. On her neck, she had indentations indicating she had been strangled. There were marks on her wrists and knees indicating some type of restraints were placed there. The police thought that because of these marks that she had been abducted. She had bruises all along her body and it appeared that she had struggled. Upon autopsy results, it showed she had been murdered by strangulation. They also found later that she had water in her lungs, which is indicating that she wasn't dead when she was thrown into the ditch. Sadly, they had to perform a rape test on her and found she had also been raped. Ugh, the worst. Previously, there was a missing missing persons report that had been filed, and the officers compared the driver's license photo to the body and found it was the missing person, and they identified her as Stephanie Brown. Stephanie was 19 years old, and she had only been reported missing a few hours earlier. Oh, that's so sad. She was described as very pretty and outgoing, a great friend, and she was working at the time as a bank teller. What had happened was Stephanie received a call from her roommate that her car had broken down and she needed a ride to her boyfriend's house. Stephanie drove and met them in downtown Sacramento, and it was a very unfamiliar area to her, and she was unaware how to get back home, so her roommate's boyfriend drew her a map. Stephanie drove around, and she ended up getting lost. And then this is when her family reported her missing because the next day she didn't show up for work. Man, he had to draw her a map. Think 86. about like yeah, like nowadays, like th- that wouldn't even happen, right? Because she would just put it in Google Maps. How different things are. Ultimately, in this story, you find out this was kind of this the murderer's mo was to find somebody who was broken down or lost or you right. know just pulled over. I mean, God, we have so many like murders and all that stuff that I'm sure the murder rate hasn't decreased, but we don't pick up hitchhikers. That's all had to have decreased, but then I'm sure it's increased in other areas. The day she was reported missing, the police found her car on an off-ramp on I-5, pointed in the wrong direction. They thought she may have stopped there to get out, try to figure out where she was and get her bearings. The police tested her car, and it tested fine. It was drivable. At that point, that's where they think that she was abducted from. When they found Stephanie, her shirt had been missing. There was one particular detective. His name was Vito Bertocini. And he went back to the ditch and he took a rake and he raked the water back and forth. He was trying to find her shirt and he felt something and he pulled up a blue tank top. Her mother had reported that she was wearing that tank top the night before. The tank top had been cut up the side and one of the top straps had been cut. They were not tears. They were cut, but not straight cuts. They were in a design. One snip this way, one snip the other way. So like a weird design, snip through seams. So it wasn't like they had just teared into it. There was like a specific cut to it. At Stephanie's funeral, her mother noticed that Stephanie's hair had been cut short and Stephanie always had long hair. The detectives then suspected that the killer had purposely cut her hair. Kept it, like as a souvenir. Was this the killer's trophy? So Detective Vito went back into the ditch to try to find a cutting instrument. He used a large magnet and he found a pair of crimp-style scissors from Italy that had been shipped to the U.S. So what he did upon finding the scissors was he went out and asked the media to contact them if they owned scissors like that or knew of anyone who had had them. 
Right, because that's kind of like a specialty thing that you just don't buy it, you know. Mm-hmm. Because it was like a such a specific cut that they could maybe use that to trace down, which was very brilliant back in 1986 to even think of something like that. Right. One call only came in that said they had purchased the scissors 10 years previous and that further just Im- indicated how odd those scissors were to the area. So at this point, they have zero leads on who could have killed Stephanie. August 16th, 1986. Almost a month later, Stockton, California, which is 30 minutes from where Stephanie's body was found, a young woman, Charmaine Sabra, and her mom, Carmen, were on the side of the Interstate 5 freeway, stranded because their car broke down. They had gone out for a girl's night out. At 2 a.m., no one was stopping to help them, but all of a sudden, a man in a dark-colored two-seater sports car stopped to help them. He said he was heading to Sacramento and he could give them a ride one at a time because it was only a two-seater. Charmaine went first, which she was the mm. daughter. I would have been like, I'll, no, we can sit on each other's laps. We good. <laughs> You'll figure it out. Charmaine went first because she had a small baby at home. The man never came back for Carmen. Carmen, after a couple hours of sitting out at the car on I-5, she realized they're not coming back for me. Carmen went and found a ride home for herself, and she went straight to Charmaine's apartment and found that Charmaine had never made it home. Mm-hmm. So the next day, August 17th, 1986, Carmen called the police and reported her daughter missing. No one had reported seeing her. So the Carmen worked with detectives, and she went to an artist where they sketched out a profile of what this guy would look like. Yeah, because she saw him. She saw him. He was white. He had a larger nose, dark hair, but really nothing really outstanding. They then released this sketch to the public. The detectives, which for 1986 I think is outstanding, but detectives had started to think, you know what, these two abductions have to be linked. Two weeks later, on September 6th, a hunter discovered a body of a female in an irrigation canal about two miles from where Stephanie was found. Mm. The detectives were positive that this was going to be Charmaine, but when they got there, they discovered the clothing didn't match what Charmaine was wearing, and it was just skeletal remains and basically a mummified body. Like it had been there for a long time. This woman had been strangled and her top had been taken off. The straps from her tank top had been wrapped around her wrist and her neck. Her hands were behind her and put through loops, so if she would move or pull down, it would strangle her. Oh my god, that's sick. Because then you're inflicting it upon yourself too. Right. The the cloth had strange, precise cuttings, cut through a seam, weaved back and forth, basically the same marks as Stephanie Brown's. This raised concern that now they have a serial killer on the loose because this would be three people. They find what is the classification for a serial killer? Like, I think it's two or more, not related incidents. So it's not like if you are at a house and you killed two people, that's not a serial killer. I think if it's like different instances too, two like isolated incidents. Did you watch Mindhunter? Yes, and you know what? I watched a show randomly on TV last night with Ed Kemper in it, which made me think of Mindhunter. God, that guy who plays Ed Kemper is fantastic. Fantastic. Especially watching the documentary with Ed Kemper last night. The guy who played Ed Kemper was in that Richard Jewell movie that I told you about a long time ago, about that Atlanta Olympics bombing, and he Mm -hmm. he's such a good actor. That guy. Yeah. He's really I really good. liked that show too. Mindhunter. It was really good. And they may not be renewing it. <gasps> what? Why do they always do that with the good shows? I don't know. And that's definitely in my top five of favorite shows. 
Yeah, it was really good. So they had no leads on who that body was. November 9th, 1986, about two months later, in the Sierra foothills of California, a hunter was out. He was about 400 feet from a highway, and he found skeletal remains. This all had the similar marks of the Jane Doe and Stephanie Brown murders. Her top had been cut, and it was used to bind her hands behind her back and to go around her neck. The dental records confirmed it was Charmaine. The detectives made up a task force. They went to the press and put out a warning for female motorists about this killer. This is how he got the nickname, the I-5 Strangler. They released his sketch, and upon releasing his sketch, they had plenty of leads. They also made a profile of the killer and how he used scissors, how he used the scissors to cut the clothes, but in like non-functional cutting. So it was like his trademark. Yes. The detectives had thought, though, that it was a need-driven behavior. That was like how he obtained his pleasure was from cutting these clothes. He could rape, he could murder, he could do whatever, but he wasn't fully satisfied unless he cut these clothes he wanted to control and dominate the women and it was part of his sexual habits and fantasies which with our fetishes episode we never get anybody talking about cutting clothes thank the lord right god we did have people have those strangulation fetishes though which i still can't see i can't get down with that just freaks me out i'll tell you i had that happen to me one time and i was like no yeah oh i've had people try to do that to me i'm like no no. See, this isn't going to happen today, and <laughs> it's not going to happen tomorrow <laughs> or the gonna... next day. Yeah. And you know, I don't want to do it to you either. So you know, we're. I just like to play games. You know, like yeah, like what's in my mouth? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's something you ask somebody before you do too, right? Like you're what? not. <laughs> Percent, just uh, just like putting your dick in someone's butt, and, and when they're thinking it's going to go in their pussy, you, you don't, you you don't just do that, right? Yes, yeah, two two. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, the detectives have thought that this whole murdering, cutting the clothes, strangulation, all this is going to repeat until he's caught. Like, he's never going to be fully satisfied. So the search continues on. In December of 1986, dental records show the victim was Lori Hedick, a totally different person. She was a prostitute in Modesto, California. Her boyfriend had last seen her get into a white car with a middle-aged white man. And this was not the same description that Carmen had given to the police, because you remember it was a a blue two-seater sports car. So the detective, Vito, went to an area where prostitution was common, and he handed out flyers of what the perpetrator looked like. He wanted to find out if any of them had any information. Some of the women stated that they had seen a dark blue two-seater sports car in the area, and the person who was driving it looked just like the guy in the sketch. And this is where it's crazy. While these women were talking to the detectives, the car actually drove by. No. Yes. No. The car. Like, what are the fucking chances of What that? are the odds? I mean, he was out on the prowl, too, because, I mean, months were going by in between all of this happening. So right. the fact that they were out on a night when he was out driving around is bizarre. The car matched the description of the car that Charmaine had gotten into, described by Carmen. So the detectives go, and they follow the car, and they performed a traffic stop because the car went through a red light. Probably because he saw he was being followed, right? But he probably never should have because then how can they pull you over, right? 
Right. Mm-hmm. If there's no reason to pull you over. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And if you're running a red light, that looks pretty fucking suspicious. Very suspicious. Um, driving the car was a middle-aged white man who resembled the composite sketch. The police officer said that this guy was totally giving a bad vibe out. I'm sure like if even if you think that it's going to be this person, it's going to creep you out. Even if he's totally innocent, but you think this is the perp, right? It's yeah, gonna- it's going to have your flags <gasps> raised like already. The guy driving the car was Roger Kibbe. He had a dark blue sports car. They took him down to the station for an interview, and during the interview, he referred to women as bitches and gave the impression he did not care about women whatsoever. They also found out he was familiar with the area where Charmaine's body was found. He worked in Modesto, which is where Lori Hedick was working. It's all kind of interlinking here. They had no hard evidence to implicate Roger to the I-5 killing, so they had to release him. June 21st, 1987, about six months later, a family was walking along Deer Creek Road in Sacramento County and discovered a woman's body in a creek. She had literally been thrown into the creek. No. And this was after they had let him go. Mm-hmm. Because that was like November or December-ish. So six months later. The clothes had been cut in the same way. Her underwear, her shorts, her top, everything. And it was all linked together. The same way everything previously had been with all the other victims. But in this particular case, she was not strangled. She was stabbed. The detectives thought that maybe she was fighting back while he was cutting the clothes, maybe got the scissors, stabbed him back. They also found a piece of duct tape in her hair, which was they hadn't found any duct tape previously. So then this brings them all the way back to Stephanie Brown and thought that maybe Stephanie had gotten the duct tape caught in her hair. And the way that the killer thought to get the duct tape off was to just cut, to her cut hair. it. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Well, there's a lot of victims here, so it's hard to keep everything straight, too. Yeah. So they go and they try to lift fingerprints from the duct tape, but there's no luck. They were able to identify the victim as Karen Finch because she had fingerprints on her driver's license. She was 25 years old. She lived in Lodi, California. She had a two-year-old daughter. She she had left her kid at her ex-husband's house, and her boyfriend tried calling her, and he got no answer. So he left home and tried to find her and drove the path she normally takes. He found her car parked on the side of I-5, abandoned. This was victim number four. Detectives wanted to find Roger Kibbe, while they are presenting this to, you know, the, the task force, the detectives from another precinct calls and states there was a perpetrator who had tried to abduct another woman on I-5. This woman survived a brutal attack. September 14th, 1987, 29-year-old Deborah Jiffy working, was working as a prostitute. She was picked up by a man in a white sports car. He said that they should go to this golf course where they could be secluded, and as soon as they pulled in, he locked the doors and grabbed her arm. She jerked away suddenly, and he lost grip on her, and then he grabbed the back of her hair. So they were actually struggling and fighting, but she was thinking like he was caught off guard. He slammed her face into the console, said, don't struggle, and you won't get hurt, but she fought back and kept on fighting and fighting. He opened the door and pushed her out. Oh, my God. She saw headlights ahead, and as she's running towards a headlight, she sees that it's an officer in a cop car. He asks, are you all right? And she said, yes, get him. He's crazy. So the officer raced after the car, pulls him over, and takes him into custody. Before he was pulled over, the cop saw him throw something out of his driver's side window. They recover the bag and find duct tape, scissors, and ligatures, and a garat. A garat is two pieces of wood attached by these white cords, and you can use it to 
wrap the cord around someone's neck and then pull the wood together so you can strangle them. Oh, my God. The cops determined that this is his murder kit. So Roger Kibbe had been arrested, and they thought it was him, and man, they were correct. Yeah, and what sucks is they had him the first time but didn't have anything to charge him on, and then Mm -hmm. he was able to... Which throughout all of this is a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing that you need evidence because look at all the people who have been wrongfully imprisoned. Yeah. Yeah. And in this case, it's like, God, you had the right person. You know, too bad you needed the evidence. So it sucks. Well, at least they got all of it this time, you know. Yep. So Roger Kibbe had been arrested and they thought it was him. They were correct. So while they're putting this whole case together on him, they get a call about another woman who was found dead off of the I-5 freeway. A jogger was running by and could smell something bad. She was naked laying 20 feet off of the road. Her pantyhose were cut exactly the same way in these weird patterns. And they had the detectives had thought that the murder weapon was actually her clothing with a tree branch made into a tourniquet to strangle her, and she had been dead for several weeks. The condition of this body was that she was decomposing and there was no ID, so they had to ID her by teeth or fingerprints. She was identified as Darcy Frackenpole. She was 17 years old. Oh, that's terrible. And she she was a runaway from Washington State. That's so sad to me. Yeah. Detectives find by her body a clue that helps them. So there are pieces of cord all around the crime scene. The white cord was the same class, same size, shape, color, type as they found in Roger Kibbe's hit kit. They identified the cord as parachute cord. They find out Roger was an avid parachutist with over 4,000 jumps that he had done, but they still needed forensic proof. They took the cord and clothes and sent them to the Department of Justice to see if they could find any forensic evidence. While all of this is going on, Roger Kibbe is going to trial for the assault of Deborah Giffey, who was the one who got away. Yeah. It's so crazy to me that they still have they have all this evidence, but they still can't use any of it. Like they well, have yeah, to- I mean, it's the 80s, so they don't have like DNA. Yeah. So the detectives are like, dude, if we can't connect him to all these murders, even if he gets convicted for Deborah's case, they know he's going to be back on the streets. But the good thing was, was Deborah was willing to testify against Roger. So on November 25th of 1987, he was convicted on the attack of Deborah, and he was given eight months. Oh, my God. Well, at least they had eight months to build a case against him, right? So the detectives knew that they had to work fast because they only had eight months to make sure he never got back on the street. So they started comparing all the evidence. They took parts of that white cord, put it under a microscope, and they found small specks of red paint. It was unique because you could only see it under the microscope. They compared the other cords and were able to find red specks of paint on them. They were then, because of that, able to obtain a search warrant for Roger Kibbe's house. Well, Roger was married. Roger's wife was not cooperating and she was upset. And she said, this is the same thing that was happening to him 10 years ago. Oh, my God. <laughs> he he was a suspect in a missing persons case in Wall Creek, California. So the cops were shocked then because they had no clue he was part of this other case. During the search, they found more white cord with the exact same red paint on it. Wow. De- detectives thought, like, dude, this is the missing piece that they needed, the evidence that they needed to convict him. They charged him with the murder of Darcy Frackenpole. Then they're thinking, like, why does this guy hate women so much? Something with his mom. That's uh-huh. what I'm going to say. 
Have you heard this story before? No. I, just like Ed Kemper. It was yeah. his mom. Remember? Oh, yeah. That yeah. case is so wild to me. Mm-hmm. So they look into Roger's past. He grew up in Chula Vista, California. And while he was at school, he was made fun of because he had a learning disability. His mother was also extremely abusive. And she told him repeatedly that she hated him. He had been arrested for stealing ladies' clothing from clotheslines when he was a teenager. He had also been a peeping Tom. He started cutting clothes as a teen as a form of arousal. He'd bind himself up and also wear the garments, and this was a sort of ritual for him. Oh, God. Makes they, me think of Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the best scene in the whole movie where he tucks his penis and his leg. <laughs> Will you fuck me? I'd fuck me so hard. One of the challenges I was on, I was on with a guy who would get so drunk, and one of the nights he tucked his penis in between <laughs> between his legs, and he was making fun of another one of his cast members, and it was hilarious. And I'm not going to implicate anybody by, by this story, but his other there was some of his other cast members from his season on that episode on that season, and he they were like, "Stop it, you can't do that," but we were all secretly laughing because. It was pretty freaking funny. Yes. So the detectives were thinking that that was a ritual for him and that he's punishing his mother in his head by doing those things. February 14th, 1991, two and a half years after his arrest, he goes on trial for Darcy Frackenpool's murder. Roger, I guess, was sitting there just staring at the detectives. Just like mean mugging them. They were allowed to bring in other cases to point out correlations between them and the cutting of the clothing. The jury comes back and they convicted him of first-degree murder, sentenced him for 25 years to life. While Roger was leaving the courtroom, he said, yeah, I've killed two or three women. What's the big deal? Oh, my God. Fucking psycho. But detectives know that they weren't done yet. They needed to know how many women he had actually killed and to get justice for the other women who had been murdered. So they kept pursuing this case. Yay for these people. Yeah. How many others were there? So eventually, forensic technology had caught up with Roger Kibbe after he had served about half of his time. So in March 2008, they could actually test the evidence using DNA technology. So they looked into the rape kit that had been used on Stephanie Brown. Then Detective Vito in 2000 took a blood sample from him. Like Detective Vito actually went to him and said, this is happening now. This technology is caught up to you. We're going to take a blood sample and... I guess he was kind of an ass and he said, fine. But Vito, Detective Vito went back and said, I'm going to match you up. He was like a badass. He's like, I'm going to get you, motherfucker. I'm going to get your ass. (laughs) The testing was done on Stephanie Brown and they sure enough were able to nail that the DNA was matched to Roger Kibbe. Now, because of this, they could go after the death penalty for Roger Kibbe, and they were planning on doing that unless he actually admitted to all of the killings. Roger stated he would plead for his life without parole, and the detectives just thought it was so funny that here he is begging for his life, and he doesn't want to be put to death. Right, like after he's killed all these women. Mm -hmm. Horribly killed these women by strangulation? I mean, that's because it takes a long time to strangle someone, you know. So Roger had said only four. I'd only done four killings. Then he said five. Then he said six. And then he finally said seven. He said, yeah, I did seven. I will stand on seven. Probably more than that. Darcy Frackenpole, Stephanie Brown, Laura Hedick, Charmaine Sabra, Barbara Ann Scott, who we hadn't heard anything about, Kathleen Quinones, who we hadn't heard anything about. Then he also admits to Lou Ellen Burley in 1977, which would have been the case 
that his wife was talking about. That, that he, he was guilty of. Damn. Can you imagine being his wife? Do you remember no. that series that they had about – it was like a docu-series of spouses who were married to ser- serial killers? Like mm-hmm. they had the spouse of the Green River killer and – BTK was married. Yes. Had a daughter. Yes. It's so crazy to me because how – like you always just feel like, man, I would know. I would be able to recognize the signs and it's like, well, maybe you're not. Maybe you wouldn't. No. Right. And you're not following your husband or your wife around all day long. Who knows, right? Like, so crazy to think of because, I mean, all these people, you know, live double lives, basically. So crazy. So throughout all of his confessions, he would give specific details about the rapes, the strangulation, but he would never give any details about the clothes cutting. What does that mean? Right, because that was like his thing, cutting the clothes. So you just have to, like, speculate that it did have something to do with his childhood and getting back in his mother and, you know, all that shit. But Yeah, did his mother sew? Was his mother, like, a seamstress or something? He ended up getting six successive life sentences without parole. And to this day, the detectives think that there's still maybe more deceased women out there and they just still haven't made the connection yet. 100%. Yeah. I had never heard of this at all. And for the fact that there are so many murders i'm surprised i have heard of this i i, I want to say it was like a forensic files or something that i watched on it not like a super long doc you know show about it but i have heard of it just so crazy thank god for like dna evidence and stuff nowadays it just you would have to think like it just makes it harder to get away with something like this yeah. Well, because even as clever as you think you are, the, like trace amounts of DNA being left behind, like you never know. Yeah. Well, I feel like I've took up this whole episode talking. <laughs> that was an interesting story, though. You know, I mean, there were so many different women. Like, thank God they caught him when they did in, he's in jail for the rest of his fucking life. I mean, even like going back to Ed Kemper, which we should talk about that one time, too. I had never heard of it, honestly, before Mindhunter. I hadn't either. Yeah. And that's a, that's a good one. It's bizarre. Um, okay. What is our next topic on Mixed Bag of Nuts, right? Yes. Okay. And I cannot – I've been waiting to share this story with you. I cannot wait. <laughs> it's a listener story. And it's fr- I'm sure she can't wait to hear this story being told to. It's freaking fantastic. It's so funny. And it's just right up our alley of gross, funny shit. I, I love, love it. it. I'm so excited. I'm so excited to share this story. Yeah. Yeah. I have I have a couple good ones too that I'm I'm excited to share. All right. So that was been dark for y'all. It was very dark. And you know what? I just I just want to put one little thing in there. So I've really been getting back into reading. So if you follow me on Instagram, you will see the most recent books that I have been reading. As soon as I'm done with one and I pick up another one, I try to put a picture on and what I'm going through. And if you want to discuss with me, I love it. But I am reading a book right now called American Dirt. If you want to read it along. I think I've heard of this, actually. It's a bestseller. It's definitely on one of the top lists. But it's so it's American Dirt by Janine Cummins. Yep, I've heard of it. It is about... A woman who befriends a guy who is the lead, the leader of a cartel in Mexico. I'm not going to give anything away. I have about 100 pages left, but it is 
It's a tough read. It almost makes me not want to go back to Mexico because it's scaring the shit out of me. I'm like reading mm. it at night and I, I love going to Mexico. We go probably once a year and it's like this shit really goes on. It's just making me realize I'm in the sheltered, beautiful little life where I don't have to worry about escaping. And like my family comes from Europe. My grandparents escaped Nazi Germany. My grandparents escaped Hungary being taken over by the Turkish, blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to get on into all that. But like I, yeah, that's a part of my history, but I've never really had to think about it. Right. And reading this, it, so it's this woman with her son, her eight-year-old son. And now that I have a son, it's like, oh my God, you know? So I highly right. recommend reading it. I'm not done with it yet, but it just kind of makes you more aware of humanity, especially in these craziest times of everything that's going on. It's like, it just makes me want to be a better person, really care for people. And I think we should all be kinder and spread a little love around. I think it's a great book. I highly recommend reading it. It's it's a not the easiest read. It's a little gory, but I this is one I'm definitely getting behind like, hey, read it, check it out. Sorry, little side note. <laughs> you do your reading and I'll do my puzzles. I did just receive a book from a friend though that I thought you read too um, was Little Fires Everywhere. So I'm going to read that. Yes, I just finished. That was a book I read right before American Dirt and I loved it. I would totally be willing to have a conversation with you about that too because it, it goes – there's some interesting topics that it brings up and, and things like that. That was one I didn't want to put down just like this book too. So, and there's a series on Hulu too. Yeah, I've seen it with Reese Witherspoon. You watched it already? No, I've heard oh, it. I haven't okay. seen it. Okay. And if anyone is interested, Melinda and I are in a book club. So, <laughs> we're book you, club nerds. You can join our book club and read the books that we read and, you know, chime in on Facebook yeah. what you think about the books as well, too. So, Maybe Let we'll do like a in our cool book club. Yeah, we could do like a Patreon <laughs> book club or something. But one of our our listeners, Mike, shout out to Mike. He actually told me he bought the book American Dirt and is reading it because I had posted about it, which I think is is badass. Whatever gets you into reading, reading yeah. I think is wonderful. So I did All right, watch uh, recently oh. the act on Hulu, and that was really fucking. That's good. about Gypsy Rose. He sure is. So I started reading this book called Rose Gold. And it was like they totally just copied the whole situation with Gypsy Rose. But that has to be one of the most bizarre freaking cases ever. Oh, I'm going to have to cover Gypsy Rose Blanchard on true crime episodes. Do it. Because I've always yes. been obsessed with this case. Like, it's so wild to me. So it's wild. crazy. But I definitely recommend the act on Hulu. It's, I haven't it watched it. It was so it. fucking good. Okay. I'll have to watch it for sure. Like I watched girl, the documentary, but not. The girl who played. Um, Joey Gypsy. King. Oh, my God. She did the best fucking job playing her. She's the freaking cutest kid ever. Like, when she was young, she was in um, Beezus and Ramona. And she's in, like, a mm -hmm. whole bunch of stuff. She was in The Dark Knight. I mean, she's such, oh, she's such a cutie pie. Yeah. But she does a good job. Um, well, we'll wrap this up for you. Hopefully, everyone can sleep tonight. Not thinking about bodies under the bed or on the highway. Yeah. Sorry if we scared you. I don't know if I'll be able to sleep thinking about – I was thinking about it too when I'm at a hotel. I'm like, was there ever a dead body under this mattress? Like, I <laughs> Right. Like, it's so <laughs> freaky. Ugh. Yeah. All right. Make me laugh. Make me laugh, bitch. Make All me right, laugh. All right. I will end our episode with our blonde joke. Why did the blonde pee on the ground? I have no idea. Because she saw a sign that said, wet floor. 
<laughs> yes, I really like this one. Now it gives me an excuse to pee anywhere I see a sign like that. You're darn right.